Welcome everyone to another edition of Frame Rate. Uh, we are here to talk about a movie that just dropped uh, a matter of days ago, and it is a, a pretty big deal because it's a new film by Charlie Kaufman, one of the most uh, successful avant-garde surrealist filmmakers outside of David Lynch of the last 20 years in Hollywood, I would suggest. And uh, this movie just came to Netflix. It's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's based on a novel. And I'm here tonight with... Jamie Prater. Dan Ferlito. And Micah Green. To talk about what the shit this thing might be about, what it means <laughs> what to us. <laughs> Anybody who's seen a Charlie Coffin film actually happened. <laughs> knows what we're talking about. It's never one thing. It's never exactly what it seems. It's, these movies are designed to be seen multiple times. Um, a lot of film reviewers actually have said that they that they don't review a Charlie Kaufman film the first time they watch it. They wait to see if it holds up a second time and what they notice about it the second time through. So we're, you know, I think all of us have seen it only the, the one time so far. Um, so, you know, we'll see if it feels different the second time. But this one, I have to say, compared to some of his other films, uh, really hit me, I think, the way that, uh, and maybe not the way he intended, but it hit me in a very direct way this very first viewing. And uh, I want to unpack some of the reasons why but before we get into it uh why don't we start off with jamie what is your uh what, what is your history what which of his other films have you seen um are you a fan of his or where, do, where does he register for you i love this question patrick wants to know this is a Patrick <laughs> question <laughs> uh, i'm very familiar with his films uh i will admit that i did i cannot could not watch eternal sunshine of the spotless mind all the way through it lost me i've tried it twice not that it's bad i just it got too crazy. I do love uh, the Meryl Streep film. Um, uh, what's the Adaptation? Name? Adaptation. I thought it was fantastic. I am familiar with his work. I love him as an artist and a writer. Um, so, yeah, I have a deep appreciation for his films. But his films aren't for everyone, for sure. And they're heady and they are not. Yeah, they're just, they're a lot to consume. They're a lot to process. So that's that's my experience with Charlie Kaufman. How about you, Dan? What's your background with him? Um, I think as I often am, I might be the amateur in this category. Um, I believe that um, I've only seen Eternal Sunshine, which I love. Um, also, I, I learned kind of doing a little research for this that Charlie Kaufman's only directed and written a few things. He wrote a lot of films. Eternal Sunshine's a good example of something he did not direct, but he wrote the screenplay, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I really love that uh, film. I think that, oh, and I've seen Being John Malkovich. I'm sorry. Uh, in fact, I'll yes, just rewatch it the other night. Me too. So those Great are, movie. this is only my third film of his that I've seen. Um, uh, I, I've I've listened to podcasts about adaptation. It sounds really cool. I want to see it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, and yeah, Malkovich was, it's a trippy, weird movie, but I really like the, I think that there's something about, um, what's the Royal Tenenbaums director? Uh, Wes yeah, Wes Anderson. Thank you. There's something about Wes Anderson's like whimsy and surrealism that I dislike. I, I I appreciate it. I get why people like it. It's just not my jam. Um, whereas Charlie Kaufman, I do like it. And actually, um, Eternal Sunshine kind of holds a special spot for me because I think is it's the most Phil Dickian science fiction film that I've seen that's not a Philip Dick story. Like if I had to guess, I would have guessed that Philip Dick wrote it. Just the way 
that it's about someone's brain being manipulated and yet that person is telling the story. And so inevitably the story um, sort of has these strange gaps and uh, weird turns because it's like uh, someone with a mental illness trying to tell a story, right? And you're including that mental in illness in their story. It's kind of like that. And so that, I, I feel like that's a very Philip Dick kind of concept and the way he writes and the way he used to write on, on psychedelics a lot, it kind of like matches that. I, think. I should say, Dan. I don't know if you if if you know this, but uh, but he, he cited Philip K. Dick multiple times as one of his biggest influences. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I mean, I I, I read um, a Scanner Darkly after really really loving that film, and uh, that film is really really uh, faithful to the novel, and the novel just reads like that as well, where you're like really in someone's thoughts and in someone's head, and a lot of them are trippy and on on amphetamines or psychedelics and you're like what the hell is going on um so yeah there, there's something about that that's strange and and i do i don't know part of it makes me feel dumb because I, when i watch these movies i'm like how do you get in the headspace to write something like this like when i think about a story that i would write it's just way more straightforward and not surreal i mean i guess i'm not a writer so that kind of explains that but um anyways so that was my very limited experience with charlie kaufman uh, and i didn't know pretty much anything about this movie going into it. Um, it left us with a similar uneasy feeling to the way Vietnam's enemy makes you feel. Um, so I found some similarities with that film. But anyways, I'll pass it off to Micah. But before Micah says anything, Patrick was sending very uh, manipulative texts last oh, night before man. we recorded this. This yeah, Jamie did not want to be on. The, he was like, he's like, I have no interest in coming on this episode. And I was like, I Jamie. Yeah, Jamie. Did. You said you were like, yeah, you did. You were like, I don't want to watch this movie. I don't no, want to be no, on this I show. Said, I said, I said, said, you're going to want to be on this show. Yeah, I did, you, Patrick's I didn't, never I didn't manipulative. Want to be on show. What do you mean manipulative? <laughs> well, the trailer, to be honest with you, I don't think I realized it was Charlie Kaufman until a couple days after you asked me. And then I remember seeing the trailer and the trailer is nothing about what the movie's about. The trailer is like nothing. That trailer is a trailer for a regular drama whereas this movie is a completely different beast anyways here's um, how it works either Patrick's jamie reverse psychology worked on me i believe <laughs> i said I, I believe i said it's not really a jamie movie i think it's more of a damn thing <laughs> you can talk about it it's okay and jamie was like bitch you're not gonna win this one and then he was like okay i'm really getting into this movie and i was like yes you are because i knew you would love this movie and I, I knew this is something you could have a lot to say i don't so know if i love it show. but we'll talk about well, it well you would love talking about it at least anyways Micah, what did you think? And what was your background? <laughs> okay, so I, like you, Dan, have also only seen three of his films. I've seen um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That was like a, the first time I saw that. I think it was like either early college or late high school. So it was a very, um, it, was, it was me experiencing an artsy film for the first time. Um, and I loved it. And I also really didn't understand it. Um, and the other thing I saw was, um, oh my gosh, yeah, I can't say it. Synecdoche, New York, yes. not Schenectady, New York. Synecdoche, which also, um, it really blew my mind a lot. And I, and I sit with it like you do, Jamie. Like, I don't know if I love it. I definitely don't hate it, but I Hang don't on. know if I love it. Hang on. I just got to hate on East coasters for a second. You're telling me, oh. you're telling me that Synecdoche, New York is pronounced what? <laughs> it's synecdoche. All right, hang on. There's many levels of dumb about what you're saying, Dan. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> Mr. West Coaster. Okay. So it's so there is a town in New York City. It's a city of like 60,000 people in upstate called Schenectady. So C-S-C-H. Yeah, I'm not going to spell the rest of it because no, I can't. 
Schenectady, New York. Synecdoche, New York is a play on Schenectady where the, where the film takes place, but it's also a play on the literary term Synecdoche, which literally means, or I don't know if it actually translates to this, but it means a part of a whole. So it's using part of something to represent the whole of something. So saying, for example, sails, like saying, you know, like, oh, like there, you know, there were sails on the ocean as opposed to saying like there were boats on the ocean. You're, you're using a part of something to signify a larger thing, you know? Like I said, I'm too dumb for this, but let's, let's let Micah <laughs> continue her point. <laughs> Anyway, I guess, um, so I've seen that and I've seen this, we watched this movie, um, I'm thinking of ending things. And again, don't know if I love it, definitely don't hate it. Um, what I will say, like to sum it up in a couple of words, how I felt about that movie was that I was very ill at ease, um, very ill at ease. And there were a lot of things that I related to in sort of a negative way with relating to the the girl the young woman um and that came up in a lot of interesting ways um and i was gonna say one more thing before we talked about dumb new england names Sign um, yeah sorry <laughs> I don't sorry. I no, no 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 it's okay oh i guess a lot of the time when i watch and i mean granted i've only seen three but a lot of the time when i watch his films i even though we just saw it really recently it feels like i woke up from a dream and I was supposed to remember it because it was important and it was heavy and it was um, very vivid and colorful, but I can't remember it. Like I can't remember Synecdoche. I can't remember that even though we watched it together. And I am starting to already forget what we just watched because it's so like, it's so visceral and it's so like, it's a lot of feelings. I, I think that's of, of his films. It's a lot of just like her paint, her paintings which we'll talk about, I'm sure. It's a lot of like feelings and expression of feelings without words. So it, it's very abstract and it makes my mind get confused. So I, I hope that I sound coherent when I say what I say on this podcast, but I'm sorry in advance if I don't. Uh, real quick, did you guys, any of you see Anomalisa or Confessions of a Dangerous Mind? Anomalisa no. is crazy. I've seen that. Stop motion. Yeah. I saw it with an ex of mine a few years ago. Um, but Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is more of a little bit more straightforward for Kaufman. I'm surprised you haven't seen that. I well, so Animalisa, we we I remember specifically we wanted to see it in theaters when it was out, and then like our plans fell through and we didn't get around to it. And then I just it's one of those films that I forgot existed until this came out, and I was like, oh fuck, I love Charlie Kaufman. Like I should go back and check this out. So we're definitely going to see it like next. That's good. That's like next on our queue because I've heard so many great things about Animalisa. Um, Charlie Kaufman is one of those people who he's he is. You can compare him to a lot of other artists of various types, but there's nobody who's quite him. And I think part of that is that before he found his thing, before John Malkovich came out, he was floating around for a long time as like an unproduced writer, just kind of like getting on episodes of TV shows, writing spec scripts, throwing them out there, producers, you know, he's kind of from outside the studio system. He's from, what's actually a, lives in Connecticut for a while. What's a spec script? Spec script is a, it's a, to get produced, but it's not, it's, you know, he wasn't like assigned to write it, but he's writing something and farming it out there. It's and seeing like a first draft. Okay. Yeah. And, and seeing if there's interest in it, you know? So, so he, uh, so he wrote tons of those and got some work and wrote some episodes of things, but uh, for a long time was sort of like um, just floating around out there trying to get a, a, a foothold in, in Hollywood. And I read a, a cool article about his work, his, his like 1990s writing work that um, likened it to Sama's dot which is a, one of my favorite, it's like a very David Foster Wallace word, which is basically like underground materials, like things that only kind of the cognoscenti would know about, 
that has like, it's, it's not out in the open. It's kind of like secret messages being sent out there. Apparently for a lot of the 1990s, Charlie Kaufman, as he started finding his voice was just like getting this reputation as this, like if somebody could find a way to make this thing into a movie, it would be like so brilliant, but it's so out there and so bizarre that like there's not gonna be an audience for it. And it really wasn't until Spike Jones came along who I know we all uh, really appreciate her, the film that he did and many of his other, I think he's a great director. Um, you know, he came into this through, I think Francis Ford Coppola because he's married to Sofia Coppola and Francis Ford Coppola saw one of these spec scripts, which was being John Malkovich and was like, Hey, like, you know, I think you have the right sensibility for it. Maybe you can tackle it. And of course that came out in like 1999 around that era and was this huge splash and was nominated for awards. And it, and it, a lot of why it was successful, I think is because is because it was so strange because it was like so so bizarre and because of of all things the actor that they chose this whole thing to take place inside of was John Malkovich who was this like kind of like vaguely well-known character actor but he wasn't this like a-lister it was just a movie that had a lot of things going for it right and it almost um, wasn't him I, I was reading that uh he wasn't he, vaguely unknown though he was known John Malkovich has, has I mean in popular been. culture he wasn't like somebody who just walking He's down not the street Tom Cruise so, yeah. right yeah, right, he's right. a character actor and he turned it down initially. He thought that while the character should still be John Malkovich, he thought someone else should play him. And then eventually they convinced him to join the project, which is interesting. This is such a great fit for that. But um, anyway, so yeah, so Charlie Coffin is, is, is just one of those people who, and then eventually when he got to Synecdoche, New York, um, started directing his own material. Um, Spike Jones was supposed to direct that and they dropped out to do Where the Wild Things Are. And, and, um, this thing was already in motion. It was already being produced. It was already ready to go. So he stepped into the director's seat and I think proved himself to be an incredibly, I mean, Synecdoche, New York is one of those movies where if, have, have you all seen it before? I have not seen it. Oh my God. It's such a, it's such a good movie. Actually, Roger Ebert said it was the best film of its decade of, of, of the first decade wow. of the 20th century of the 21st century. Um, that is a, it's a, it's like a, one of those movies that just shakes you to the core, but I agree with Micah. Actually, we were talking about this today. I was like, I don't remember if we were together when I saw it because I saw it like when it was originally out in 2009. And I realized like, oh, it was when we first started dating. It was like one of the first movies we saw together, um, which is pretty cool. Anyway, long story short, um, I'm thinking of any things, as I mentioned, is based on a novel from 2016 by Ian Reed, which um, I really would love to read this thing. One more little parenthetical side note, which makes sense because we're talking about Charlie Kaufman. I can be tangential a little bit is that he actually published his first novel this year. So that's something else. If you're looking at reading some weird shit, you should pick it up. Um, and it is a story that on the face of things has a really simple pitch, right? It's about a couple, not in a great place in their relationship, going to visit the boyfriend's parents out in a kind of a remote farm house and uh, having kind of a trippy time and uh, things go awry pretty quickly. So it's something that, it's a setup that makes a lot of sense, right? And indeed for the first half of this film at least, it really feels like it's playing out, even though it's hallucinatory, like that's kind of the story that we're seeing. We're seeing this through this woman's perspective as she's traveling out to this thing, thinking, thinking of ending things, right? And that's the first line of the whole movie. Of course, we don't know exactly what she's talking about. Like she could be talking about killing herself. She could be talking about ending the relationship. She could be talking about ending a lot of things. Um, but that little kernel of like, what is she actually talking about? when she's talking about ending things, stays there basically the whole time. There's this little bit of nebulousness that's just right there from the very first sentence of the, of the, of the film. Uh, and I think it's just, uh, it, where it goes is, is really extraordinary. But I guess I, if we can pull it back for a second, um, anybody can go. What are your like overall impressions? What did you take from this movie at a, at a high level? 
Um, well, first off, to line up with what you were just saying, um, I, I kind of like had a feeling things were going to get weird. But in the first half, I would say up until they sort of start to meet the parents and then things get weird during dinner with their parent with his parents, I was like, is this going to be a psychological thriller? Like just a weird thriller, but it sets up kind of like a horror movie a little bit. The, the, the camera angles and movements, the dolly movements are creepy um, and make you feel sometimes, especially in the house, like someone's almost crawling around. Um, so I had that, that definitely had that feeling to me. Um, and yeah, so I, I really was surprised when the movie starts to turn into a more internal psychological direction. Um, and it's interesting because you don't really know, while the woman is narrating a lot of it, you don't really know who the protagonist is or who's, once you figure out you're in someone's mind, basically, it takes a second to figure out whose mind are you in um, until you realize that really Jake slash the janitor is the main character whose mind the story is coming from. But um, in terms of things it left me with, you know, it just kind of, um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. I read a little bit about the differences between the novel and the film too. Um, and like some of the narration is different and a few of the events are different, but it mostly follows the same timing. It really felt like a realistic portrayal of what long-term depression and isolation um, can do to someone and what they can feel like in someone's head. Um, being that the story is written from this janitor's perspective and it's very obvious as the story moves along that kind of there's a melancholy to it and that it feels like um, these are some of these are representations of like regrets the janitor has about things he missed out on in his life women he didn't date etc and so you know it kind of you know and, and i think we've all had moments like that in our lives and it just kind of so so if you can relate to that type of depression or isolation and again 2020 with the pandemic i'm sure there's lots of people including us at different points that i'm sure have felt that way um i'm sure lots of people listening to this can relate and so it was an interesting take on what if you felt like that for 30 years straight, you know, and got to a point where you were old and alone and in a depressing place, which I, I'm sorry for anyone from Oklahoma, but I do feel like just that entire state is a very depressing place, but I, I've been there, but anyways. Um, and yeah, it, so it's sort of like, it allows in, in the hour of the two hours that gives you that feeling and makes you think from that perspective, it gives you it has this strange time travel feel to it that makes you understand um, one version of what a man specifically, since it's written by a man and the main character is a man um, might feel like after, you know, 30 years of the same sort of boring job and, and loneliness and depression. So I, I thought that was an interesting kind of magic trick to, to get you in someone's headspace in that way. Um, so yeah, it felt more mysterious to me and melancholy than sad. Um, but I then proceeded to spend hours diving into, you know, different reviews and podcasts and, and articles about it so that I could wrap my mind around a little bit more. And I think that once I had other people's ideas about what the film was about, and I read a little bit about what Charlie Kaufman thought it was about, although parentheses, um, he's very open to having his stories be interpreted differently by, by different viewers. And I really like that aspect. I, I, 
I like when artists are like that. I think it's awesome to allow openness and not just like say to define things and be like, no, this is what it's about and this is what it is. Um, but so a lot of things I didn't come up with on my own and figure out on my own, but once I read about them, I was able to kind of formulate my own thoughts and going back and forth and it, and it became more intriguing as I learned more about it and, and I learned more about the intent. So that was kind of what I was left with. Jamie, were you ready to give us your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so I actually don't, did not get the impression that the main character was a man at all. Um, in fact, I don't think in my, and for me, how I interpreted it was um, that the character of the janitor was in fact the, the older version of Lucia's boyfriend. Um, and we were seeing this this idea of his past life and his future life and everything involved. But I do think, I feel like the main character was the girlfriend. She was driving everything. And um, it did, it didn't seem melancholy to me. It seemed, I mean, the film ran every single emotion that we all feel every single emotion that we experience in our friendships, our, our dating relationships, our marriage, all of it. Um, and the, and how disconnected every character was from each other. Every character was speaking and no one was understood. And I thought that was really brilliant um, because it's, uh, uh, but also terribly sad at the same time that we're all looking for understanding. We all want to be seen, which I thought was a really interesting, but uh, if you, you know, towards the end of the, of the film, you hear, or you see the janitors say to the girl, the woman, I see you. And, that seemed like the struggle for every character. They wanted to be seen for who they were. And no one was because no one's paying attention. No one's really listening. No one wants to be touched. No one's really hearing. They're hearing snippets. And I thought it was completely overwhelming in a terrible sense. I don't mean terrible like bad, but it was emotionally draining and overwhelming. Um, I I agree with Jamie. I, I had a similar um reaction to it. Um, and I'm kind of still in the midst of processing it. So for me, um, it was a very unsafe feeling movie. Um, and I think it's because I related to the girlfriend through it. And I, and I kept waiting for something terrible to happen to her. And it was, um, I was telling Patrick about this when we watched it, that the, her repeating, over and over again, I want to go home and the desperation rising with those moments of, uh, of them just totally, they're not going to get home. And I think the audience can realize that sort of right away, like as things start to go downhill. But for me, it was a, it, it felt unsafe. And I recall being in situations before in my life where I felt unsafe like that, where I just wanted to go home and I was not sure if my communication, no matter how clearly I made it, was coming across to the person I was trying to communicate it to. So for me, like it was a, it was a sort of visceral reaction. And, and I was actually really afraid um, for a lot of the viewing of it. Um, this is not to say that I didn't enjoy the movie and I didn't think it was artful and um, incredibly interesting. Um, 
So I, I did, I liked the movie and I liked what it explored, but it definitely felt for me like very unsafe. I was very nervous <laughs> during the whole thing. And Patrick and I were joking that we were both really scared. We were too scared to like take the dog out before we went to bed and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so I, I would say like the first thing that comes to mind when I think about my thoughts about it, at least for right now, is that I felt unsafe because I could relate to the demise of what is going on for this girl. And, and she knows, especially once they get to the high school, um, hopefully, I don't, I don't want to spoil it or anything, but when they get to the high school, spoil it. okay, when they get to the high school, it is very clear that she's not going to get home tonight. And whatever that means, um, as far as her fate, uh, is unclear, but it, it's just, it was, it was, it's just struck a chord with me and it was terrifying. And, um, the, like the idea of being in a house where you're supposed to make a good impression where you want to be anything but there. Um, I can, I, I just understand that feeling and I understand the, her performing for them. And, um, Wow. It was just, it was a lot. And I, and I, I feel like my thoughts, I'll say it again, are going to be super um, convoluted when I talk about it, but it, it's because the movie itself is kind of convoluted. And when you're watching it, you might have a thought, but then it goes away because something else totally different happens and, to, and it will strike you in a different way. Um, so I guess I, right now what I'm sitting with was how scary it was for me to watch and how um, unsettling it was. Um, and it was a really interesting take of perspectives because it, it seems like for the first half of the viewing that you're, you're really with the protagonist and it's this girl, but then you're realizing, Hey, I don't even know what her actual name is. I don't know what her job is. It keeps changing. And she's almost like a yes man where whatever he tells her that she is this, she agrees and she talks about it in an expert way. And that is is also like such a masterful um narrative to have written um another thing i want to say really quickly is i started to notice i think the the film does such a great job of subliminally making you aware that things are not normal and things are not okay um because from the beginning uh with her inside voice sometimes you can't know whether she's it's her mind speaking or her she's actually saying something to jake um so that's interesting. And that kind of catches you off guard because you're, you're sitting there wondering, oh, did she actually say that out loud? And then maybe even she's wondering if she said it out loud because of the way Jake reacts. So you're, you're, the illusions that everything is not normal are present from the beginning. And I started noticing like little things like her outfit would change. Um, and I always thought that like, oh, this is a choice. Like right now her outfit is changing. And I wonder why that is. Why is she no longer wearing the sweater? Why is the sweater pink? Why is it yellow? Why is it orange? Uh, why does she all of a sudden have pearls on? Like I, those little things I was picking up on and like latching onto because it was like a concrete visual thing that I noticed was different. And I know that there's a lot of subtle things that probably went over my head, but yeah, it's just so much to sift through with this film and it, it, it could be discussed for hours and hours and hours. So that's kind of sort of what I feel like about it right now. Yeah, I agree about the uncomfortable feeling for sure i i mean like we took a break and i think from what i was reading a lot of people do kind of like pause and take a break for a sec because it's a lot to take in um and i think from that kind of thriller like 
I mean, thriller is a bit diminutive, but you know what I mean? Like that general kind of eerie feeling. And, and also I feel like the film does some foreshadowing where in a normal movie, um, like I was convinced they were going to get into a car crash eventually because it's mentioned several times how treacherous the road is and how unsafe it is. And it's like, you can never see more than like three feet in front of the car. And they seem to be driving pretty fast for chain weather. And I was like, they're definitely going to get in a car accident. And then it doesn't happen. And I realized that the foreshadowing was kind of masterfully done, at least in my opinion, to give you that feeling of like, oh shit, are we about to get in a car accident? Is she going to get raped? Is like something crazy going to happen? And then to never follow through and never have it happen because it's not a narrative, you know, linear storyline. Um, but I feel like they still wanted you to feel that way and to feel uncomfortable um yeah i thought that was a really fascinating way to do it um in, in terms of the 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 sort of creeping horror aspect i totally agree with what you guys are saying and and for me there's a scene very early on that is like really scary and it's really scary in the way that david lynch scares me and and I, i'm a big horror fan as you guys know i watch this shit all the time so i'm not really afraid of 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 you know what a lot of people think it would be horror movies, but I'm very afraid of some psychologically disturbing things that that push the boundaries of dream logic and and push this sense of sort of incipient madness. You know, like I find Lovecraft very scary for that reason too. But David Lynch does a lot of things in the way that he frames certain beats and certain shots, where it's something that shouldn't be scary, but the way he shoots it makes it really, really unforgettably frightening to me, at least. And one of those shots happens early on, and it's when Lucy or Louisa or Lucia is in the car and um, and Jake is asking her to recite, he's not asking her, he's telling her to recite the poem over and over and over again. And right before she recites it, she looks out of the car right into our eyes for a second. And that, my, my fucking heart jumped out of my throat. It was such a scary moment because that, and especially in a, in a film made so deliberately, like that was a choice. That was not like accidental eye contact. That was her breaking the fourth wall and staring at us for a moment and bringing us into what this actually was. And what this actually was, of course, was her acknowledging that this is not her environment. She's not actually in her own world. She's in somebody else's world. And we are we are voyeuristically watching her through this other person's experience. And she's fucking looking at us. And that moment to me, which has, is very quick and is in the context of this kind of quippy, you know, road movie feeling stuff, really fucking threw me off. And then, of course, right before or right after that, you see the swing set, which is the identical swing set to the one that was in the backyard of the farmhouse. And the second time you watch it, of course, like you realize early on, like, okay, it's clear this is just his head that we're inside. But the first time you see it, you're like, why the fuck was there this identical playground sitting out there, right? And that those little early clues I find really, really frightening and really subtle and frightening in the way that things should be frightening, which is in a deeply unsettling manner that's not reliant on like shock value or, you know, freaking us out or anything. And it, to talk about that too, like it's it's scary in the way that you take the scariness and you apply it to your memories and you apply it to your feelings that you felt in your life. And for me, that moment scared the crap out of me too, because for me, she looked around and was like, get me out of here. Um, and it just, it, it was very animalistic almost, the stare that she had on her face. Like, like you said, it's not her world. She's not in control. And it wasn't... Um, she didn't seem frightened in the moment, but she did seem like I need to get out of here. And like, that was a real thing that she was telling the audience, like I shouldn't be here. Like she was telling us to get her out of here. Right. Yeah. She was like, and it wasn't yet in the, 
desperate way, like I'm going to get hurt, but more like I can't, I shouldn't be here. Right. And I feel like from that look through the rest of the film, it's like a louder and louder and louder. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here until she finally says at one point, I shouldn't have come. Like I didn't have to, I didn't have to come. I, I should have stayed home. So it's like from that moment, that look at us that chilled us to the bone to the end where she's actually saying out loud, I shouldn't have come. It's just, it's like a crescendo of that feeling. So it's so scary. And I, I want to toss it back to Jamie, but before I get into too much more about what I think it's about, um, but I just want to mention something really quick that Dan had brought up about the, you know, how they were traveling very fast from the snowstorm. Because this is something, Micah brought this up actually while we were watching it. She's like, are they even driving? Like, is, are they moving right now? Because it's true. You don't see anything outside of the immediate frame of reference for most of the movie. And that, I think, is a brilliant use of dream logic in a film. Because when you're dreaming about things, there's not a world outside of what you're witnessing, right? You're only seeing what's actually, what you're actually standing in, right? And, and this whole movie, because it takes place within this you know, imagination of this guy, like all, all that exists is what is actually happening in that moment. So if you were to walk out of that farmhouse, you know, it would be like walking into a video game that hadn't rendered yet, right? It would be just walking into nothing. If you were, he's not thinking about where they are on the highway. He's not concerned about where the other cars are. You can't even hear, I mean, for almost the entire movie, you don't even hear another car driving by. You just hear wind, right? Um, and I think that is just so fascinating. And and like, of course, the epitome of that is when she looks outside and there's snow and it's falling only on top of this car, right? And that little moment, which is another one of these very Lynchian moments that just scared the fuck out of me for some reason, is just, it's just exactly what it feels like to be trapped in a dream. And there was a similar kind of a Stockholm aspect to, I, I mean, not even Stockholm syndrome, but a, a similar kind of a hostage aspect to um, when you're in a dream and you can't wake up from it, but you kind of realize you should be waking up from it, you know, because things are about to get worse. You know, that feeling you get sometimes at four in the morning where you're in a dream and you're like, oh, fuck, like, why is this going on? Like, I, I need to wake up. But you also kind of need to see what happens next. A lot of the movie takes place right in that space for me, right in that space between kind of being alert enough to know that you're dreaming, but not being able to stop the dream from unfolding. And that is just a space. I mean, it's really hard, I think, to produce art that sits in that space and um and earns it the whole time and i think he does a really good job anyway jamie um if if uh, if you can do you want to get back to what you're saying yeah um it's what's interesting to hear you guys say that this film is takes place in this guy's imagination or his mind or whatever i didn't pick up on any of that i think i was so invested in these characters and the dialogue because it's really heady and dense all of these discussions that are happening and I didn't ever feel scared there was one part point where there she wanted to go in the basement or she was asked to go in the basement and she's you know very like should I I don't know if I should go down there and they're like she's like go to the basement live your life um, and I felt like I wasn't scared but I was like well, what's down there that they don't want her to see um, but the film never it has this sense of foreboding but it also has a sense of misery to me these people felt miserable um, again and I didn't feel bad that she kept saying she wanted to go home. I want to go home. But at the, I was realizing, but you're not even present there. You're not even present. So you, you didn't even really emotionally arrive to this house. You don't even want to be there. So I, was, I didn't feel bad for her that she wanted to go home because I, you see all of these things happening. His parents needing care. His parents need attention. She was only concerned about herself. She was only concerned about what she had to do. And I was like, fuck you, lady. Like, like, look at what's happening. No one is present. No one is present with each other. And the way that the mother tried to touch 
Jake he pulled back every time or she tried to kiss him and pulled back and other people were she was doing that too uh, Lucia or whatever her, whatever you want to call her um, she was pulling back from connection from tactile connection everyone was no one was really connected so I thought it was really like I didn't interpret this film as something ephemeral or as or as a moment in someone's mind or as this guy's life and all of these what ifs happening i really interpreted it in a in a very literal way as i was presented with these characters um and we're seeing the dynamics of life and the consequences of the decisions that we've made as people as adults as um not being emotionally invested in people um not being fully present with people pivoting to our own opinions first pivoting to hearing ourselves first before we hear other people and that to me was the loudest voice but i interpret these but i also realized of course by the time the film that last half an hour of the film 35 minutes it becomes this whatever i don't know what it becomes in the end with the dancing and the i don't know what that was about um it seemed very interesting but also the film reminds me of mother by Darren Aronofsky, where you have this entire world happening within this very small space. And some moments that really t stuck out for me were when she, you have her walking down those stairs four or five different times with different, different things that she's saying, different decisions that she could have made. That she, And I thought it was really, really interesting. Like, the film, to me... It did make me a little bit uncomfortable for sure, but I was also like, my God, these people are miserable. Um, but I also felt like it was a really moral tale of what it means to, like how quick life is. You see the different versions of his parents. They're, they're, they're older, of course. Okay, so when we first meet them, they look like they're maybe they're in their 50s, mid 50s, and then we see them again. Looks like they're late 60s, possibly early 70s or they're withering away and we're seeing these moments like boom boom they're passing you by and and um she notices but she doesn't notice and then jake is really paying attention to his parents but she still wants to go home she still doesn't want to be there present with him even though she sees the dynamics or what have happened of what is happening within that space, whatever that, whatever it is. I don't know. It was just really, it was powerful for me. It was so powerful. Um, the, the, mo the morality tale that these characters, uh, carried with them. And it was, and it, it clobbers, at least for me, it clobbered me over the head, but in the best ways, like wake up, wake up and live a better life than you're living. Um, be more present with people, listen to people, see people for who they are. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I don't, I have no opinion of the, of the last 35 minutes. I don't know what to think about it. That's interesting. Um, I, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And we'll talk a little bit about the cultural references. I mean, I had to look into Oklahoma cause I've never seen it. I don't know the plot, et cetera, but I want to follow this thread that Jamie started since it's going to be different, I think from uh, the rest of us, uh, especially, you know, most of mine is from reading explanations about the end. And I'm like, oh, okay, now this makes sense. Now that makes sense. Now I understand. But from your perspective, and since I know you haven't really read anything on it yet, um, and this isn't to question your logic or anything like that. I just, I'm questioning, or I want to know uh, what you were thinking, because I remember when things started to get weird in the middle of the film, right? 
outfits are changing. The parents' ages are, they're not just aging to their death. They're also coming back and being younger and then older again, and they're bouncing back and forth. Um, at one point, everyone except her disappears and she's by herself. And you're like, and I remember I was thinking her reactions are so weird. Like she's just calling out to Jake, wondering where Jake is without questioning the fact that everyone in that room just disappeared in front of her eyes. And so I was like, you know, my sci-fi brain is kind of thinking, is this house a time warp? Is there time travel going on? Is it, is it, is somebody on drugs? Is it a dream state? You know, I'm trying to put some logic into it, even though I realized that obviously the film is going somewhere ethereal. Um, so I'm curious, what were your initial thoughts when you saw this sort of interdimensionality that started to happen midway through. Well, I think uh, in our text last night, I said that the film feels very lit like a book. I feel like I'm watching a book. And when you're reading a book, you can have time jumps. You can have all these myriad of things happening within one page. And the movie feels like that. So I didn't really interpret them any way except for this is the texture of the film. And this is also, for me, in terms of how I perceive life, the the moving through time and th th that's even a discussion are we moving through time or is time moving through us and so that's how i interpreted all of that like time is just moving this could have been all of a sudden uh a fourth visit that they were having with his parents and then a second time that they were there and they were older um and she couldn't remember when he she met him and the the ephemeral quality of time that's how i interpreted i didn't i didn't go any further than that probably because the characters are so rich i didn't need to i didn't i didn't need to understand the construct the characters were enough for me it's so it's this is so fascinating because that's it's so different from how i interpreted it but you arrived at the same place that i arrived at which was like what the what it was actually about which was seeing each other right and being present in, in our in our lives and with the humans around us but what's in, what's so interesting is that like the way that we viewed it was different almost throughout the entire thing until until that point what I will say though is that the way that, that I watched it and the way that Michael watched it because we talked about it a little bit and I'll let you get into this too. Um, the ending makes total sense to me like that last with Oklahoma and all these other things you know that were going on. Um, and so so I, I do I do think that it actually makes sense. And, and, and for the whole, the whole movie didn't quite click to me until that dream ballet sequence that happens. So I want to talk just for a second, if I can, about what a dream ballet is, because this is a convention that I love, and I've written one of these um, in, in a ballet that I wrote. I have a, the whole second act as a dream. So Oklahoma was the first time, at least at, it's, it's thought to be the first time, a stage work incorporated a dream ballet sequence, where basically the narrative stops, everybody stops talking, and dancers come out, and they enact what's going on. Um, and this is, and so like, you know, you have a musical that's very talky and Micah was in Oklahoma. So I want her to be able to talk. I to this. can speak to it. She, oh, can, she cool. can do the choreography too. Oh God. No, it was bad. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but there's a, a part where, uh, where all of this, you know, these show stopping song and dance numbers, Oklahoma is a weird play for one thing, a weird musical, I gotta say, because it, on the face of it, it is like just this very classic Rogers and Hammerstein racist uh you know dance around do a hoedown you know like oh i love you so much i'm gonna go pick some corn that kind of shit right mm -hmm. and then it gets really dark like really really dark and then it just forgets that it was dark and it ends happy again and it's like what did nobody else notice that fucking somebody Someone just got died like like it's a crazy crazy musical they literally drag they literally drag a body off stage and then they're like let's continue with the wedding they do a fucking square dance after it. oh it's so weird but in the context of the play there like i said there's a dream ballet sequence where all this kind of showbiz song and dance stops 
and it becomes something way more ephemeral and strange than that for, for a few minutes. So uh, what I love about incorporating Oklahoma into this show is that from a formal standpoint, it also in introduces this dream ballet that explains, I think, a lot of what's going on in the rest of the film. Um, and it also makes it even more confusing in some ways because, you know, the the protagonist, if you're looking at Jake as a protagonist or if you're looking at Louisa as the protagonist, um, the, you know, they get rent asunder by this evil janitor who by this point in the film, everybody watching it is thinking, oh, that's Jake as an old man. So like, why is he now a separate person murdering his younger self, right? So we'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, just, just very briefly, um, to me, the reason why it feels so unsettling is because of, and I mentioned this in our text last night, it wouldn't be unsettling on the face of it if it were told from a different perspective. So this is Louisa's story, I think, told through the context of the setting of the mind of a guy that saw her at a bar when they were young people. And, and so he, like, this, whole, this guy whose life went in directions that he was clearly unhappy with, um, you know, basically just latched onto this one ephemeral moment that he had with this one woman across a bar who he thought was beautiful and interesting. And his whole entire life then progressed from that moment onward with this woman as a figment of his imagination, living out all of these fantasies with him. And this, is, this has become the way, so as he's sweeping those hallways and as he's going about all the, you know, quotidian banal things that, you know, you do as a janitor, right? Like he's escaping into this fantasy world where he's living out, you know, the dream of Oklahoma and he's with this woman who is all these things that are so fascinating. She's a nuclear, you know, she's a particle physicist. She's a poet. She's Pauline Kael. Like she's, she's all of these, she's an artist, right? She's all of these things that he, that he loves. Um, and so she becomes his excuse basically and his crutch for living a very inner, very poor life. Um, and so when things fall apart with his family and he's kind of stuck home, right? Caring for his mother and she sees him, right? And, and that is the best, best fantasy of all for him because all he wanted to be was seen this entire time, which is why at the end he sees her like Jamie was so beautifully saying, right? Like this whole time, like, so, so as, as his fantasy construct, she sees him and that, you know, if, if you think about it, like they never have sex in this thing. It never gets like particularly intimate. It's basically just, he's not alone. Like it is just that he has somebody who's there to witness him, right? But what I, what I, the, the one thing I want to touch on briefly that I'm thinking about is it reminds me of my grandfather who I've named for, Patrick D'Amico, who was my mother's father who died when I was two. And in those, in those two years that I had with him, who I have no memory whatsoever, he and I were inseparable. I had a different name when I was born. I was born Andrew. And he was so like emotionally attached to me when I was still in the hospital that they decided to name me after him because we had this very special bond. So I have no memory of this guy at all. And no memory. I have a few photos of him. I have some stories of how loud he snored and things like that. Like I have some sort of constructs of who he was, but I've, ne I've never, I don't have any, any actual internal knowledge of him, but he has lived in my brain now for 30 years, you know, more than that. Since he died, I've been, these stories have been being told and I've been seeing these pictures that I see of him come to life in my head. And, and I have him as a companion in my mind, but I don't know. I don't know what his voice sounded like. I don't know if that was actually who he was. Um, and he's been there for my entire life. So my point being that when a figment of your imagination like that has been there for that long and has lived with you for that long, I think what Kaufman is saying here is that they start getting some degree of autonomy over it, especially I think if you're an old man who is having some you know, panic attacks and is having apparently some mental breakdowns and already losing a grip to a bit, like I think it'd be very easy for his imagination to start taking on a life of its own. So her moment of agency, which is first signaled by her looking at us, watching her, I think, that is a really frightening thing for him, 
I think, because he feels like he's losing a grip on this thing that he's been controlling his entire life, right? I'm not saying that he's been doing the right thing in doing that, but like, that's what I'm assuming is going on. Um, and so what's fascinating though, is we never see these stories from the perspective of the imagined person. I, I can't think of any film that has ever done that before. We always see it from the perspective of the imaginer. We always see it from the perspective of the person who's trapped and lonely and isolated and thinking of these things. We never see the things he's thinking of as they're the center of the story. Um, and it would be terrifying. And there's a lot of Black Mirror episodes that touch on this that freak the fuck out of me still. You know, uh, like the like it made me feel similarly to the woman who's trapped in the teddy bear for eternity. Like that, I, I just find that horrifying, right? Because this woman, as she gets agency and as she's calling herself over and over again with these different names and telling herself to get out, and as she's warning herself by running across these high school kids and you know, et cetera, as the place by people telling her to get out, right? Like she has gone through this so many times now, so many hundreds of iterations that she's warning herself as a figment to get out of this existence before it's too late. But she can't because she's not real, but she's becoming real for this guy who's in the midst of what appears to be a mental breakdown. Um, and then I think the end when he has the paradoxical uh, nudity, which is actually a, a thing, which you can probably talk about, Micah, but a lot of people who are experiencing hypothermia will actually strip their clothes off. Um, so he is like gone. I mean, like he's dying in the end of this movie. And in, with his dying, I think he's having this one final trip with her to meet his, his parents. And I think as this is happening, he's realizing how little of his life he's actually lived. And that is a fucking lonely place. And I just want to say one, one thing before I shut up, that the Pauline Kael thing in particular, I just fucking love, I think that um, Jesse Buckley like, is such a great actress. And I think this is such a great indication of that because she slips just completely without even thinking about it into, into this verbatim quoted review of this Cassavetes movie, right? Which has a lot of plot similarities to the film, which we don't want time to get into tonight. And she does it in this way that feels like totally natural, but she's doing an actual impression of this, you know, New Yorker critic who's a legend, right? And of course, then when you go see, you know, um, Jess, not Jesse, oh my God, what the hell is his name? Uh, Jake's Room, there's a Pauline Kael book, you know, on the banister. There's the same book of poetry, Rotten Mouth, where her poem in the beginning came from. There's Trivial Pursuit, Genius Edition out, right? There's all these little clues that show you like, oh, fuck, this is- Genius, this whole thing. Genius Edition? The Genius Edition. <laughs> and he's arguing about it. And that's what's so interesting is that, and this is like, if, if we had more time, I would get more into this with you guys. But like, like, why is he, he's arguing the wrong answer in his own fantasy, indignantly against his mom and looking like an asshole, looking like a petulant child in his own fantasy of himself. And like, what the fuck is that all about? I, I, there's so many, so many interesting things. Anyway, well, I'm going to see the floor. I think I have an answer to that specific question uh, yeah. in terms of like, why are things uncomfortable? Why are things awkward? Why does it seem like his parents are saying the wrong thing or he's annoying her or freaking her out? And I think that's his lack of self-confidence. He's so intimidated by what could have happened with this girl that he can't even be the hero of his own fantasy he can't even be like the good guy or the charming guy or the intellectual or the successful person in a fantasy with this girl even there he's having trouble holding her attention or getting her to tell him what she thinks or reciting a poem that she was writing. Like he's trying, right? He's trying to be interested and he's trying to flirt a little bit and he's trying to be charming. And even there, he can't pull it off. And so the fact that he would be arguing a wrong point about something with his mom um, doesn't surprise me in that context because it, it, it shows how powerless he is 
to control his own life, even in his own fantasy, which is a place where if we have a choice, most of us go to fly and like do cool things and see people that, you know, like we can't talk to anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and even in, even his fantasy is kind of depressing and he's in a, and he's a, he's in a tough place, you know? Well, just to speak really quickly to the Oklahoma part of it, I did do the show when I was in college. Yeah, please. Um, oh my God. Um, it was not the most fun show. And it also, I mean, people love Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, for a good reason. The music is gorgeous. But what, what, else, the show, what else have they done? Do you, do you know a couple things? Uh, done? The King and I, Cinderella, like all of those okay. musicals, Pacific, like all those musicals that grandparents yeah. love, probably written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, so th th they're very good at what they do, at, and it's producing a musical for their time. So a lot of the musicals, if you listen to them now, you're like... Ooh, little cringy um and oklahoma is one of those and the story centers around Lori, um who is really proud and supposedly independent woman and she is in love with but won't admit it with curly who's a cowboy and they like love each other but they're they like like to fight about it anyway off in the background is this character named judd and Judd is a farmhand and he lives on the ranch where Lori lives and he loves her from afar, but he is an other. So he's not accepted. He, people would not accept if Lori and Judd were together. Um, and so he's basically, he's an other and he would never be allowed to be with Lori. And she is clearly not interested. She's interested in Curly. So the whole show goes through this sort of song and dance with Lori and Curly finally getting together. And then Judd decides in this really awesome song, which you hear in this film, um, J oh my God, what is the character's name? The, the male, the guy character in this movie. It's a J, right? Jake. Jake. Yeah. Okay. So Jake sings it at the end in front of, every, in front of this audience. I just realized, sorry, Jake, Judd, Lucia, Lucia, Lori. Yeah. Yeah. Lo Lonely Room, so, I think, is the song. Lonely Room, which is, it's such a, such a depressing song because it's this guy just, um, a masterpiece, though. it is a masterpiece. Oh, it's but gorgeous. It's, it's this guy who is ruminating about his existence and talking about his fantasies and then realizing and sort of accepting that they're not real until the very end when he says, I'm going to go out and do it. And in Oklahoma, he goes out and tries to be with Lori and she rejects him. And... <laughs> Basically, long story short, Curly and Judd fight about it. Judd tries to kill Curly, but Curly ends up killing Judd. So Judd is the body that is dragged off stage, and then they go and get married anyways. <laughs> they, like, don't talk about it ever again. Like, it's, there's not even a scene change. Like, no. there's fucking blood on the stage, and they're like... And he, <laughs> literally, when we did it, we dragged the actor who played Judd off stage and continued. The, there's no scene. It just kind of ends it's the end of the musical and everyone's singing and in love and they ride away in a um a just married carriage and this guy has died <laughs> like he's dead so what is really interesting to me about the the metaphor of Oklahoma is that at first when I when they were putting it into this film I was like, oh, they're bringing up. So they're in, they're clearly in a very rural area. And they're now we know that they're in Oklahoma. So they're like bringing up this old timey musical, which probably gets performed like multiple times a year in this place that everyone loves, but 
all the younger kids kind of see it as a, like, why are we doing this again type deal? And then I, what we realized together, I think last night when we had finished the film was that this person, Jake is, he's Judd, right? And we know that, but he wants to be Curly. So in this dream ballet, and they do this also in the production, the actor who is playing Lori switches places on stage and in a dance, dancey way with a dancer who is then Lori. And then the Curly does the same thing. And then a Judd does the same thing. So even in the actual Oklahoma, that sort of switch where they purposefully take each other's place happens so that the dancers can then go and be in the dream. And then in Oklahoma, Lori wakes up with this sense of doom um, for this dance that they're all about to go to because Judd looks at her in a certain way and she's like, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, I think the whole meditation on that is that this, this man has lived his life as Judd when he really wanted to live it as Curly. And like you said, Dan, he couldn't do it. Like even in his fantasies, he could not be Curly. He couldn't get, he couldn't be charming. He couldn't get the girl that he wanted. Um, and in the end when he's dying and he's in this final fantasy, he is back in a school play with badly drawn age makeup and everybody who he wants to be there is there clapping for him and crying. So he, actually now I'm kind of thinking maybe, and this might be totally off, but like what if he is then kind of accepting himself as Judd by performing that Judd song at the end um, in a strange way, in a kind of sad way, he's like accepting, okay, I've lived my life in this way and that's the best I can have as I exit this life. Well, and also Judd had just killed Curly in his dream ballet, right? So it's it's already yes. flipped. So, so Judd is actually the victor. So his Nobel Prize speech from the perspective of Judd- Is winning. Is the winning one. Yeah. Which is also, it's from A Beautiful Mind, by the way, the speech that he's saying at the end. Right? Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. That went over my head. But yeah, so I, I forgot to say, I forgot to say and in the dream ballet in Oklahoma, the musical, in the dream, Judd successfully kills Curly and carries Lori off the stage. So that is like what she thinks is going to happen. But in the end, what really happens is that Curly is able to sort of get the knife that is being wielded against him and have Judd fall on it. And then Judd is the one who dies. But it's interesting. He sings that song in sort of the beginning. So it's like a, I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting metaphor that they chose to have Judd himself when he's his curly vision because right he's the younger version of himself jake is and he is curly in that moment but they flip it around with the age makeup and then he has accepted his role as judd but he accepts it in the earlier judd where judd is for the only time in the entire musical feeling inspired and off to go like live his dream but that's so sad because it's at the end of this person's life and he and he he kills himself, which is the fucking crazy thing. Like he's Judges. he's killing his younger self. Yeah, it's not somebody else. He's killing himself. Is this ending successful to you? Or let me rephrase that: Does the ending work for you? That last oh, for me, a hundred hundred percent. Oh my god, yeah, I was I was crying, and I, I think especially just one more, one quick thing about it that I want to talk about in terms of dream logic. The age makeup for me was like such a. It was so that 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 said everything that needed to be said because. You know, clearly the people making the film have incredible prostheses available because you see the actual aging going on throughout the whole movie. Yeah, so like, that aging makeup of the parents was so good. Oh, it was incredible, mm -hmm. wasn't it? And then you see this this just horribly crude, you know, the, the fucking charcoal lines on everybody's face, you know, at the end. 
and it is it is he's his fantasy is that like he he's unable to actually see who he is even though we've been seeing him as an old man this whole time and we know what he looks like he doesn't even know what he looks like he doesn't even accept who he actually is his inner world is the only one that is actually real for him so everything else he's doing is just the motions of going through the day but his his inner self has aged throughout this process and it's coming back and he doesn't even know what the inner self as an old man looks like because he can't look himself in the mirror and i i think that like yeah, for, oh, for me, that the ending uh, is 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 incredibly powerful, and then it ends with a snowplow coming. You're right. So mm -hmm. after the credits roll, you hear scraping in the parking lot, and you know, like, oh, they're going to find this naked old man sitting in a car, and have no idea that you know he's more than that. Like that, his life was this incredibly sad, depressing, but uh, many varied and 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 extraordinary internal life. You know that. At the end, it leaves nothing behind but a carcass in a parking lot. You know, it's it's just is interesting. But uh, what about you guys? The ending didn't work for me. I thought it was I th I thought it was, for lack of better terms, I just felt it was pretty artsy fartsy. I felt it was pretentious, um, and I really loved the narrative. I loved the quiet, uncomfortable. Um, pace of the film and then it turned into this like thing and I felt like tonally it's just this big huge shift and I wasn't ready for it and I'm not saying it wasn't successful or it wasn't good per se I just felt like it, it turned into this different movie at the end and I didn't I wasn't ready for it and I don't it's it's so allegorical it's so like okay we're gonna do this and it's so sort of new york pretentious artsy to me um i'm not saying that it is that's how i perceived it um i i i just felt like it was a little bit took a big hammer and it was like boom right over my head as opposed to keeping that same sense of subtlety and nuance and letting me experience it the way i perceive it as opposed to and I don't know, it's, it's, this is one of those films where it is pure art and it is interpreted different by different people. And for me, that last 35 minutes, I wasn't like, oh, this is awful. I didn't feel like that. I just was like, okay, the movie ended for me here and we'll see what this is, but this is, doesn't do anything for me. I did like the song. I, I thought the dancing was good, but it just felt... Well, I, I... I think there's a reason for that shift though, right? I think the reason it feels so different is because Lucy is, or Louisa is no longer there anymore. So her perspective vanishes and it's just his mm -hmm. perspective. And so the rest mm -hmm. of the movie is just him. And what you see is, is something that is way more over the top and way more nuts and way more uh, subjective for him, I think, because we've lost her perspective. So all, all we are seeing is his you know, dilapidated mind, I think potentially paralleling the actual moment in which he's dying. Uh, meaning that all of this, like taking his clothes off and the uh, stroll that he takes with the cartoon pig through the school, um, the cartoon, um, what's the name of the, uh, the Dairy Queen? That's Tulsi not the Town, Dairy Queen. right? Tulsi Town. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing that, that, seeing that <laughs> through the, yeah, very, very, yeah, very uh, creepy. They did a really good job of doing like a, <laughs> 80% believable old school cartoon like we've seen many times 
um, kind of like it reminded me of Cuphead, Patrick. Have you ever seen that video game? That's it's done in like. I can 19- love Cuphead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I play that shit all the time. Yeah. Right. So it's done in like for for people who may have not played it, it's a cartoony kind of platformer, but done in the style of like 1920s, 1930s, like Disney cartoons. It's called Rubber Hose Animation. Yeah. Oh. So like that that original style that it wasn't just Walt Disney. It was also like you know the studio that did like Betty Boop and Popeye and things like that. Their it's animation that is right in that sweet spot where cutesy becomes surreal. And it's very easy to make it scary. And I think that's, they really capture oh, yeah. that feeling. Cause like the Tulsi town thing, yeah. like on the face of it, it's like so cute. Like this, well, it's getting less cute as it no. goes along. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah, I don't it's, like clowns though. It's, <laughs> so. it's definitely, like I said, 80% just looks like an old cartoon and 20% has this underlying creepiness to it. But anyways, um, yeah, I think that the fact that the visuals and the themes kind of derail a little bit at the end and kind of explode, um, I, I think to me possibly could be explained by the fact that he is actually dying. And so his, his mind is kind of going at a, and, and in some ways it's like the whole time his life's been flashing before his eyes. I mean, we don't know if the scenes of him eating lunch and like mopping the floors are real time while he's imagining things, or if they're just showing you some of the things he did during his life uh, later on. But I definitely think that the ending for me is, part of what his mind is going through as he's um, dying, which I thought was an interesting take and certainly artistic. Um, but yeah, that's, that's why it worked for me. Here's the disconnect that I have though. I never perceived it through his lens. I never picked up that this was a story about this guy. This old man appeared that I saw that I consider, I thought it's an older version of Jake, but I never thought we're, I never had the realization that we're in his head. So for me, I was disassociated. I didn't care about him. I didn't, I was like, okay, this nice old man, that's probably Jake when he's old, having flashbacks or what ifs also experiencing his own thing because life is so quick, but I never, so the tonal shift for me didn't make sense because I wasn't with him. I was with her. For me, um, the tonal shift worked and this is why it's because for me, I'm just also realizing as we're talking about this, um, I agree, Dan. I think the fact that it, it, the, the drama was upped by like a hundred notches in those last scenes where he's in the auditorium accepting his prize. I think that could be explained by a dying mind and um, by the fantasies sort of collapsing in on themselves. So I totally agree with that. I think that's really cool. Um, the tonal shift that you guys were talking about works for me because that shot of the car covered in snow where you know there's a dead naked guy in it, that is the only real thing that happened. That is literally, like, that is the only fully real moment in the movie, I think. And I think it's meant to be, like, a shock because you're like, this is actually from the outside of his mind. Because even when you're with him as an old man, he's hallucinating and seeing things. He's talking to figments of his imagination. So that none of that is fully real, even though you may see some little snippets of him eating lunch or mopping the floors. And that's real. that might be really happening, but this, like this, he's dead. So the speech, uh, speech, the scene at the very end, before you see the credits start rolling, I think that is the only actual real moment because we've get, we've been snapped back into our own bodies. We're not in this guy's mind anymore. And um, it's just like, wow. Okay. Aftermath, this is real. And this is this, snowplow is about to find something horrible that is going to change their life so for me it was like again another unsettling image 
because we know what's in that car, but no one else who didn't watch the movie would know. And it's, yeah, like, I think, I think it's, that's the only actually real shot, quote unquote, of the film. And it's, and you can tell, I think, because of the lighting, and this was something that, that Kaufman uses throughout the whole movie, I think, to signal shifts in the character's psyche, which is that there's like some sort of a light change. So like before everybody disappears from the room in that early scene, the light goes from like a blue color palette to a white um, color tone. Uh, and this, this happens throughout. There's like some sort of a, light, a tonal light shift or a color shift. And then that signals that there's something new happening. At the end of the movie, which uh, it doesn't smash to black, which is also really interesting, right? Like most films will smash or fade to black and there'll be some sort of a, a pause, especially after sort of a, a cerebral, you know, intense movie like this, it'll be silent for a while. And then like lights will come up, right? And we'll see like the credits. But with this one, it does, this one is just, it's daylight. The color grading is totally naturalistic for the first time in the whole movie. You can see everything. You can see trees, you see birds and shit. You can see the world that is more than just this imagined spotlight that he has going everywhere, right? You see everything and you see it um, very naturalistically. So I, I think you're right. I think that that's the way of indicating it. And I also think though that the only honest moment in the whole movie is when she tells him the last thing she tells him, which is that she doesn't even remember what he looks like and that he was just, you know, this guy that, you know, they saw each other maybe when they were younger across of a restaurant. To me, like, that's the only real thing. And then after that, after she's honest, she disappears because the fantasy is broken and she's telling him what she actually was, which was not his great lost love. She's just a stranger to him, but a stranger that gave him hope um, when his life was not giving him any hope. And the magnet-infested pig, which was voiced by Oliver North, which is brilliant. And I, I love how, like, as soon as the pig starts talking, it's just this, it's such like a warm feeling because his style of speaking is just so, it's just so avuncular and, and nice. Um, this pig, like, it's funny, when, when, you, when you see the stain earlier in the movie, um, you, it, it, it's another one of these kind of like horror cues where you're kind of, you're ready to see something terrible. Like you're kind of ready to see a flashback of this horrible, you know, writhing pig family, you know, gouged out and bleeding with these horrible boils and shit. But the pig that was eaten by maggots was actually this like really sweet, not grotesque looking pig at all. It was just like him. It was just something that was kind of rotted from the inside out um, and was like at the end of its life. And I think, uh, I mean, there's obviously, there are so, there's so much more to talk about with this, but I do want to, you know, keep in mind that this is a frame rate and we're trying to keep it relatively short. So if, uh, if anybody have any final things you want to sneak in before we close? I'd, I'll just say real quick on something that's not that deep. I really like the dog. I think it was Jimmy. I think it was his <laughs> Jimmy. name. Jimmy. Because the few scenes you see him, first of all, he always appears when someone mentions him or like he only mm -hmm. appears when someone mentions him, which are <laughs> again, like, where's Jimmy? There he is. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those like subtle clues that there's something strange going on, almost like the glitch in the matrix with the cat walking by, you know? And then I think in the two or three shots he's in, he's shaking off wetness and kind of never stops. And it's almost on a loop, you know? And it Which just was looks... a very hereditary. I think Jamie, you were, or one of you was mentioning hereditary. That, the shot of the dog mm -hmm. shaking to me is another one of those things that like was a very freaky visual. And it reminded me of, of some of Ari Aster's work a little bit, where it's something that's like just abnormal enough to get really, really under your skin. The, the yeah. one image that it conjured for me is that it made me think, and this could easily be wrong, or the writer may not have written this, but just to me, the way it felt um, is I felt like the dog had drowned. Like that's how the dog had mm. died. And so that's because, you, you know, you see the urn. So obviously the dog has passed. 
um and it's an old childhood dog but the fact that he's always wet in the scene and always trying to get this water off that he can't get off makes me feel like the dog maybe drowned in real life anyways i thought that scene was really cool one thing that i found disturbing that we haven't discussed but i'll say in terms of like a last uh my last comments are the dead sheep in the barn the whole barn yeah really terrifying um and the fact that he didn't want to tell her what happened she you knew she was like well where what happened and he wouldn't tell her and it was interesting and i didn't have this sense of oh you know these people are crazy animal torturers or whatever but there's this death and it's frozen and no one's dealing with it no one's even talking about it no one even wants to talk about it i thought this is very interesting and it's of course for her it's a red flag it's like hold on where are we what's going on here um again it was just one of those moments in the film that I felt like was really profound. Quick, quick correction. I think, uh, Patrick, you mentioned Oliver North. Did you mean Oliver Platt for the voice? Is that oh, Oliver Platt. Yeah, okay. sorry. I yeah, was thinking just, Oliver yeah. North. Why would he I know. I was like, they're wrong. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Okay, anyways. Sorry, Oliver Platt. Yeah. yeah. Also, Synecdoche, New York was in 2008, Patrick. Who? We met? Yeah, 2008. <laughs> um, so... I agree with you, Jamie. That scene was really disturbing for me too with the lambs in the snow and the fact that he like really clearly didn't want to tell her what happened. Um, That started me thinking, okay, like he's going to hurt her when I still was thinking of them as two like flesh and blood people. And I think that carried with me through the whole rest of the film. So I guess like, again, I'll, I'll be repetitive and say like this film was really great, but it freaked me out so much. And I don't know if I love it but i definitely don't dislike it which is weird because i again i felt very scared for a lot of it and very uncomfortable um and i and i thought it was very interesting i always love things with unreliable narrators um and i think that's really cool and it could be like a study of the aging mind too like what it remembers and um the fact that she is a figment of his imagination so that's why He's remembering her sometimes with a yellow sweater and sometimes with a pink one and sometimes with pearls and sometimes not. And sometimes as a physicist, these are all things that he's putting on top of this figment and making her be this. Um, And I thought it's just like, it's such a masterful and very fascinating thing to explore in a film for two hours. But it was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot. And also the the Robert Zemeckis short we haven't even talked about that. Oh my yet, god! But the fact oh, that yeah. I don't get that. Like I, I didn't. Get that. It was fucking so funny. That and was I was totally calling Zemeckis out. It was a total like fuck you, Robert Zemeckis. Like in your feel good <laughs> films where everything works out and life is great. Hey, I, I love I Back to the Future. Well, right? Zemeckis was in on it. He he because he's thanked in the credits of the film. So so really? it must have been like an in joke between the two of them. Yeah, but they but, got but they I got his how... permission. Yeah, I mean Kaufman did like he didn't he had nothing to do with it, but they asked his permission to put him in, in as the director of that like sort of. <laughs> um, it, it's supposed to be like a uh, um, rom com. Rom com exactly. And Micah pointed out that the music is from Forrest Gump that's playing. Yeah, did you hear credit. it when it says oh, directed by <laughs> when it <laughs> says directed by Robert Zemeckis? It's like da 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 That was so fucking funny. And the credits roll for like 15 seconds before it. So it, I'm really like, was the what the hell was this movie? And then it, of course it was on. Um, I, the last thing I wanted to say is the basement, which which to me is just like so interesting and could be a whole episode in and of itself. 
the 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 first time they show that basement, it is so fucking unsettling. And one of the reasons it's unsettling, other than the way it's framed, is that the claw marks are on the ins are on the outside of it, right? The claw Someone's marks are trying, trying to get, to get in. into the basement, and that was actually the moment where I stopped and I and I texted you guys. I was like, "Oh my god, this is scaring me. This is like really freaking me out." Because I, I had never seen that. I had never seen somebody clawing to get into the basement before, right? Um, and I think that that again is just a really subtle, horrifying thing, and it makes you wonder what actually was down there, right? So the whole rest of the movie, there's this you know Chekhov's basement door that's waiting to go off, right? And then when it goes off, you realize that what's down there isn't anything scary, but it's just the it's only honest true. thing in the whole thing. So this whole, to me, this movie really is we are seeing Jake's memory palace, right? You know, memory palace being how you how you you know your inner thing that you construct to put your memories in, right? And every memory palace has to have a safe in it. I don't know if you guys have ever like done any of this before, but when you construct a memory palace, as Sherlock Holmes does, you need to put something <laughs> oh in a God. special room somewhere that you can retrieve that has like very, very, very high level important things in it. Um, and usually you have to like have a little combination to it that you mentally keep, or you have to have like a specific key that you keep in another room that you have to go get before you can open that room up. And so it's, it's a way of, of remembering complex information, right? The basement, I think, is that room in this guy's memory palace. The basement is where anything that actually hints at who he actually is is kept. So that's where his, obviously, his clothes are being washed. <laughs> and that's where the artwork that was hers, you know, was actually not even his. It's actually this other guy's art, but he's signing it himself because he wishes he could have done it, right? It's all of these, it's all of the little honesties in this guy's life are down in that basement. And so it makes me think like past Lucy's or Lucia's or Louisa's probably have been clawing to get into it to see what the truth was, have been trying to get down there to find out what was actually in the basement. And when she sees it, there's this moment of realization that you see that echoes through all these different iterations of her, I think, where she knows some, there's a point to that basement. There's a reason that she, and she turns and she keeps looking at it and she keeps seeing it out of the corner of her eye. And I just think um, it's just a really subtle, powerful, frightening, true thing that of course once you realize what it is isn't scary at all the movie isn't scary at all but it's also not not scary right mm -hmm. it's all it's not horror but it's not not horror um and i i just want to say like you know, synecdoche new york which i again sorry yes yeah, synecdoche new york i really recommend everybody listening to this watch because i think it's just one of the most extraordinary films i've seen and it was commissioned as a horror movie by him and spike jones it, the, the idea behind this project was that it was supposed to be a horror film and he came up with this idea that is no, nowhere near, I mean, you'll see it's even less of a horror film than this is, but the things that are presented in it, the ideas, the philosophical underpinnings of it are horrifying to think about because they're real, but because they're abstracted in this movie, you can see them for what they really are. And I think Charlie Kaufman is just the master of that. He's the master at taking these things that we are afraid to unpack in our heads that kind of sit and float around and being like, what if we make an entire movie about this thing and see it for what it really is. And what it really is, is often terrifying. Like what it really is, is often uh, existentially threatening to us, right? Um, we live our entire lives, and the characters allude to this in the movie, within the kingdom of our own heads. Like, like we have no option. We can be the most empathetic people in the world and have the most meaningful relationships. But at the end of the day, we have walls around our brain. Like we are stuck in this thing, right? Even though we branch out from it, and even though we make as many connections as we can, at the end of the day, when we leave this earth, like we are leaving this, right? And that is a fucking scary thought, I think, to a lot of us. That's the sort of thing that keeps me up at night. It's the sort of thing that, you know, uh, I find incredibly frightening. And this movie explores that just as many of his other films do with a real grace and a real um, uh, sense of uh, romanticism and beauty. And 
And I think that that's what his voice is. I'm just, I mean, it's just amazing that we live in an age where a new Charlie Kaufman film just drops on Netflix out of nowhere. And I'm like, holy shit, I didn't even know this was coming out. And it came out and now I'll never forget it. And I don't even know if I love it. I really don't. I think I, think I do. Um, but I, I will have to watch it again and see. I, I, all I know is that I'm thinking about it like all the time. And that is the art that I usually care about the most. I don't even care if something is attractive to me, but I do care if it lodges itself within me and it starts illuminating things about life. So with that, uh, we're going to leave you guys. Thank you patrons so much for, for sticking with us and being here. Thank you to our new patrons uh, who will be getting a shout out on our next episodes on the, on the main shows. Um, and again, this is on Netflix right now, so you can watch it. And, uh, and if you do, let us know what you think. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.